Broadcasting from Littlehampton, UK, this is the Man Up Podcast. From Sorted Magazine, official sponsor, staggiversary.co.uk. Loading in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. This is Steve Legg on the Sorted Magazine Man Up Podcast. It's great to have you with us again. On today's show, we've got a very special guest and friend of Sorted, the brilliant Simon Thomas. Although Simon most recently presented live Premier League football on Sky Sports, he's also known for presenting Blue Peter from 1999 until 2005, alongside Stuart Miles, Katie Hill, Connie Huck, Matt Baker, Liz Barker and Zoe Salmon. Simon first joined Sky Sports in June 2005 and became the lead presenter of Sky Sports Live Football League coverage at the start of the 2010-11 football season, but quit his role at Sky Sports following the sudden death of his beloved wife Gemma. It's a really inspirational chat, so share with your pals. You'll be glad you did. Hi, this is Lieutenant Colombo, and you are listening to the Man Up Podcast. The most fun you can have without a cigar and a trench coat. All right, I think I've bothered you enough for today. I'll let you go on and listen. Oh, oh, and just one more thing. Enjoy the show. Sorted Man Up Podcast. These guys are great. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. However, not as good as America will be when I am done with it. Simon, take us back to your upbringing and story of faith. So I was brought up a vicar's son, which I'm very aware from knowing other vicar's kids can go one of two ways. (laughs) You either become someone of faith or it drives you completely in the opposite direction. But I think what I loved about... My dad and my parents is that uh, whilst faith and Christianity was very much part of home life, it was his job for a start. Um, it was something that was never ever forced on me. I never felt I had to believe it. It was just part of family life. A lot of my best friends when we were growing up in Norfolk went to church, went to Sunday school. And it was just a part of everyday life. Grace before meals, dads doing church on a Sunday, us going as well. And it was only really in my kind of early teen years that you begin to question it for yourself and work it out for yourself. And it was something that was was always part of life and has remained part of my life ever since. But I had a I had a really happy childhood, actually. Um, I'm very lucky that, um, you know, my parents were such big supporters of me. We had to move around a lot, which a lot of Vickers kids do. So we had a number of years in Norfolk, then headed down to Surrey to a, a much bigger church, much busier place. Ended up going to public school, which was a bit of a, a shock to the system after being in a state school, but only because the school I went to had been founded for Vickers Sun. So I went on the free, basically. Um, but I had, a, I had a really good childhood and faith was always a big part of it. As you said, you were a Vickers son, but did you ever rebel or did you always hold on to your Christian faith? No, I didn't have a a rebellious phase in terms of feeling like I had to rebel against him or the fact he was a vicar or the fact that faith was a big part of my life. Listen, later in life, I had those periods where my faith was a bit shaky and um, I wasn't as close to God as I had been at other times. But I think any Christian, if they're being totally honest, would say we all have those periods in life. But I just never felt that I wanted to rebel against him. I think where perhaps some other vicar's kids struggle is when they feel it's being imposed on them that they have to do this that they kind of have to believe this um none of us in life like being told what to do all the time and i think when that happens you can begin to understand why for some of them they do 
turn around and head in the other direction almost as an act of rebellion against their parents. doesn't mean they don't love them, but they, they want to make the decision for themselves. But my, my parents, my dad in particular, listen, I knew it made him proud to have his, his kids at church. Why wouldn't it? But it wasn't something he forced on us. And I think that's really important when you're growing up, not to have faith, you know, imposed on you. You've got to make your mind up for yourself. How did the Blue Peter job come about? Am I right in thinking you started as a runner on the show? Yeah, I've done some running jobs. I basically, I watched Blue Peter as a kid. I thought, wow, that would be amazing to work on that show. I don't think in my heart of hearts I ever believed I actually would. And it wasn't really until university. So I went to Birmingham University and one of the many societies they had was one called Guild TV. And they had a proper television studio in the Guild um, of students. Um, all the equipment had been got secondhand from a place called Pebble Mill, which was in Birmingham, which is where all the daytime output used to come from. It's not there anymore. So they set up a proper studio, proper gallery, and I, I started presenting a lunchtime show called The Lunchbox, watched by absolutely nobody. But it went out on the on the little TVs in the Guild. There were no widescreen TVs back in the, uh, the mid-90s. Um, and I just got used to presenting. And someone said, as I left university, you know, you should really pursue this. You're good at this. And so I came out of university. Uh, I went back to Beckles in Suffolk where my dad was now working. They'd moved from Surrey. And I thought, I really, really want to go for this. And I want to go for Blue Peter. This is the one I'm going to aim for. And I was literally one afternoon about to start writing a load of letters, um, make a showreel tape to send off to Blue Peter, but also others as well to try and get some experience. And I remember sitting there thinking, do you know what? I don't even know if this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I haven't prayed about this. Is this just some fanciful dream that I'm about to pursue? And I don't even know if God's in this or not. And so before doing anything, I just remember sitting in the room I was using at home, very, very hot July day in the summer of 95. And I just prayed and I said, God, please, I just need to know, is this, is this the, the direction you want me to go in? I need a, some kind of sign that this is because I don't want to waste. I give myself three years. I don't know why three years, but I did. I don't want to waste the next three years of my life. And um, I prayed. And then later that afternoon, once my dad had gone out, went downstairs to use his computer and start writing these letters. And I noticed a magazine just sat on uh, a pile of other magazines on his desk. And I can't remember the name of it, but I think it might have been called Alpha Magazine or something, but not connected with the course. And on the front cover were all the sort of little subheaders of some of the articles in there. And one really caught my eye, which it says, why we need more Christians in the media. So I went straight to that page and it had been written by Steve Chalk, who runs the Oasis Trust, who was doing a lot of TV work at the time, and Pam Rhodes, who was presenting Songs of Praise. And it was like one of those moments in life, I don't know if people listening have had this, where you are sat in a room, it might be a talk at church, it might be a talk somewhere else, and it feels like that talk is just for you. Almost what that's been written or what's being said has only been said for you. And it was like the whole article had been written for me. And it was all about why we need to have more Christians in the media, why it's no good for us Christians to complain about what we see on our television or hear on our radio or read in our newspapers if we're not prepared to get involved ourselves. And it, I just thought, this is it. And so that was it. And it was three years after that, three and a half years, that I finally got the job on Blue Peter. I applied twice, didn't get anywhere. I did do runner's jobs. I had to work at Selfridges in London for two and a half years to pay the bills. I uh, did some running jobs at radio stations, CBBC. And it was all about trying to get your, your foot in the door. And then eventually, um, I gave it one last go when... 
It was all a bit weird because it came out of Richard Bacon getting sacked, but I obviously knew they would need a new presenter at some point, waited a couple of weeks, sent my showreel tape in and somehow got the job. What were your standout moments on Blue Peter? The travel is probably the one that I'll always remember because I was very untravelled before I got the job. Um, being a vicar's son, vicar's salaries don't really stretch to going on fanciful foreign holidays. I think we had one in my entire childhood, which is more than some get, so I'm grateful for that. But I was very untravelled. I'd, I'd seen Australia and Barbados, where my cousins live, that's where we went as a family, and that was it. And Listen, that's more than a lot of people get to do, but that was the big thing for me. I, I got to see 25 different countries. I remember filming in the Solomon Islands, you know, way, way, way um, out from Australia, you know, three hours flight from there, almost in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and seeing some of these places that, you know, just you never normally get to see in life. I remember in the Solomon Islands interviewing the last remaining pagan priest in the whole of the Solomon Islands. It was a tiny island. We arrived on this big boat and you could walk from one end of the island to the other in around about 10 minutes. And at the end of this island was this wood tiny little wood little thicket of trees and then we went with the camera crew and there is the last pagan priest in the solomon islands but as we walked in and this is one of those moments where you just think you never ever get to do this in normal life but there are bones everywhere on the floor of this little wood and i just think immediately they're animal bones but as i looked harder i realized they were human bones and these were the bones of his ancestors all around us and we had to interview him through a translator. And eventually, it's one of my favourite photos, eventually, I, uh, <laughs> I sort of jokingly said, I thought he'd probably say, no, can I have a picture of one of your relatives? And he laughed and said, yes, yeah. so I picked up a skull. And I've got a picture of me looking at the skull. Everyone I show it to thinks it's a joke, as in a joke skull. It's actually one of his ancestors. So things like that were just incredible. I mean, getting to do um, skydiving with the RF Falcons was something you're never, ever going to forget. Um, they were just... Listen, I can, I, I don't say this in a boastful way and I don't do it. Maybe I should do it more often, but I can pretty much out-trump anybody, <laughs> you know, at a dinner party because we just got to do boys' own stuff that most of us could only dream about. I mean, I, I remember getting, I did a film on a submarine rescue vehicle up in, in Scotland. This is just, you know, this is when the job becomes very surreal. And we went down in this uh, submarine rescue vehicle to a submarine that was uh, on the on the bed of the Carl of Lockhouse up in Scotland, had dinner with the crew, came out, did some more filming. I had to be back in London that night because I had an event I was doing the next day and we overran with the filming. And I was going back on the sleeper train and if I missed it, I was in real trouble. And my director made a call to the, <laughs> the RAF who were nearby and they came and picked me, winched me up from the submarine into a seeking helicopter and then landed next to the train station and out I got with my bag and got on the train, much to the bemusement of all the passengers who were thinking, who on earth is this who's just arrived at a train station, a helicopter? Blue Peach is the only kind of job that can give you those kind of bizarre experiences. <laughs> it's never, nothing like that has ever happened since, may I just add. So all good things come to an end, but you went from one dream job to another. How did that happen? I decided very early on with Blue Peter that, the next step was sport because you know with Blue Peter it's it's going to be in terms of life quite a small period of time it was six years in the end you know you can't do that job for the rest of your life you know it's going to be a window of time to enjoy but there's going to come a moment when you're going to have to think about what next and I decided quite early on that sport was my big passion and I started doing lots of films that were sports related that uh, tied in with BBC Sport and I felt that it was all looking good for me to join BBC Sport 
once I finished on Blue Peter. But when the moment came, when I was leaving Blue Peter, I went to see the head of BBC Sport and he felt there wasn't a place within their department for kids presenters, which I felt at the time was quite narrow-minded. I went to see Sky and they were much more open-minded and they said, look, you're going to have to begin... It's not like anyone joining Sky, I wanted to do the football. I want to do live football. I want to do the Premier League, like everyone else. But I knew I'd have to start, you know, somewhat further down. Uh, and so I did five years on Sky Sports News. Then I started presenting the Football League. And then for the last year and a half that I was at Sky, I'd, I'd achieved my dream. It took 11 years, but I, I got the gig on the Premier League. So highlights-wise, I mean, there's one that stands out, but that wasn't from the Premier League. But just because, I mean, it was hard, but to do it and to see your team win was the... Uh, the 2015 Championship playoff final, Norwich against Middlesbrough, Wembley Stadium, half the stadium bathed in the red of Middlesbrough, the other half bathed in the green and yellow of Norwich. You know, all my family are there, friends are there, and and you're presenting it, which was hard, really hard, because you've got to you've got to try and find um, you know the neutral line, even though most Borough fans at home knew I was a Norwich fan. Uh, it was just the most incredible day, uh, and obviously topped off by the fact Norwich won, and to be standing right on the edge of the tunnel and see all the Norwich guys, the coaching staff. Um, you know, the managers running out onto the pitch as that full-time whistle went and seeing all the players celebrating and being in amongst it on the pitch is, is the kind of privilege very few, hardly any Norwich fans would have got to do on the day and I got to do that and it was just, without doubt, the highlight of, of my time at Sky. Steve Legg brings you the best podcast every single month. It's so great. He's a great guy. No one knows more about great podcasts than me. The features, the interviews, even the adverts. It's a great show. Fantastic. Enjoy the show. Healthy friendships are important. Friends who listen, laugh, challenge, and offer sound counsel. Who has time for that? We do. Why not have a stagiversary? Unite both old and new friends over a day, weekend, or even longer. But this time round, you set the agenda. At Stagiversary, we believe in fun and adventure. But most of all, helping you to create space to rest, refuel and reconnect with the important people in your life. What are you waiting for? Visit stagiversary.co.uk, inquire within and let us do the rest. In the latest bumper edition of Sorted magazine, big name exclusive interviews, Hollywood A-listers, TV adventurer Bear Grylls, inspirational true life stories, adrenaline fueled sports features, all this plus gadgets, entertainment, motoring, movies and technology, plus probably the greatest team of writers ever assembled. Available now from high street retailers nationwide or visit sortedmag.com. Sorted for men for life. When whiling away the days, months, and years of the Shawshank State Penitentiary, I love nothing more than to listen to the Sordid Man Up podcast. Fear can hold you captive. Man Up can set you free. This is Steve Legg on the Sordid Man Up podcast. Thanks for staying with us. I'm here with Simon Thomas. Now, Simon, your world fell apart in November 2017 when you lost your wife. Firstly, how did you meet Gemma in the first place? So I, before I got the job on Blue Peter, spent a year 
and a bit working for the Oasis Trust. So I worked alongside Steve Chort for a year and then began to work in Oasis's media department as it was then. I then went off to Blue Peter and uh, a couple of years after I joined the programme, uh, Gemma had finished at Sheffield University and bizarrely ended up doing the same job that I was. Um, our old boss, my old boss, Ivor Peters, held a, a late summer party um, just near Windsor. Uh, and I went along to it with some friends. Uh, I'd never met Gemma. I think I'd spoken to her on the phone once about a project Oasis were doing. And I'd actually gone to the party hoping that I might get the number of someone else who I was quite keen on. Um, and I did have a brief conversation with her. Didn't go spectacularly well. And then I see this girl I'd never seen before, wearing this beautiful skirt, this cerise top, and this just lovely smile. I end up chatting to her. It's like one of those moments in life where you feel like you've known that person for a long time, not 15 minutes. And we swapped numbers and began to see each other. Um, and four years later, I did make a wait just because I was a bit of a commitment foe, but I kind of wish, <laughs> wish now I'd ask sooner. But uh, four years later, summer of 2005, in fact, it was the summer I left Blue Peter and joined Sky. We got married and were together for 12 and a half years. I'm sure it's really difficult to talk about losing Gemma. It happened so fast in under three days. Then you had to tell your young son, Ethan. That must have been terrible. Yeah, I did. I've, I mean, I've said it in other, other interviews. I would never wish that kind of moment on my worst enemy because it is absolutely heartbreaking for yourself and then to have to go and break the news to your boy, uh, is it, it's impossible. But you have to do it. There's, there's no way round it. You can't dress it up. Death is final. You know, that, that vow you say, which we don't tend to reflect on an awful lot on our wedding day, because why would you? You want to think about all the lovely things. But, you know, that, that line, till death us do part, you don't really appreciate what you're saying. But it is because death is, listen, from a faith point of view, it's not the end. I know that. I have a hope that, that one day we'll see each other again. But in terms of her earthly presence, her physical life here on earth, it's as final as that. When she breathed her last on that awful Friday in November 2017, your marriage instantly ends. So in terms of telling your boy, there's absolutely no way you can dress it up. I remember he, he'd come into hospital twice that day to see her. Um, she was unconscious, so there was no final conversations between her and him and not between me and her either. Um, and he knew she was seriously ill. Uh, her consultant had advised me that Ethan was at the kind of age where he'll appreciate it in later life that you gave him that chance. Didn't tell her that she was actually going, didn't tell him that she was actually going. But I said she was very, very seriously ill and might not get better. But then he'd come home with... Um, some of our family who'd gathered at the hospital that day. Uh, yeah, the whole way home. I, I know what's coming. I can't delay it. I could wait an hour, but I'm still going to have to deliver this news to him. And it's, it's, yeah, it's something I would never, ever want to ever have to do again um, because it's, it's, it's heartbreaking because as your parent, any parent will know this. You want to protect your children. You want the best for them. You don't want to be telling them something like this when you know that when they hear it, their world for that moment is going to feel like it has fallen apart. And it did. And, and life for him now has forever changed from that moment, that Friday night, his world changed completely. Was your faith rocked by this tragedy? I mean, I've been asked that question a few times. Why do you still believe in God after something like this? Uh, and the only answer I can really come up with is that, well, if I don't, if I let go of my faith, then all hope goes yeah, I've got the, the, the hope 
of seeing Ethan grow up and be everything that both he and his mum would have wanted him to be. But in terms of that eternal hope that this isn't the end, that one day we will be reunited in heaven and we'll see each other again and Ethan can see his mum again. If you take that out of the equation, well, death just seems so utterly... I mean, Gemma's death does feel senseless because it was half time in her life. She'd celebrated her 40th birthday literally only a few weeks before. And if you go by the average age expectancy of a woman now in the UK, which I think is 82 years, she's lost all those years. They have Cancer has robbed her of those years. But if I then allow that to rob me of my faith, then where's my hope? It goes. And so I have to hold on to it. But it's been a massive struggle because something like this forces you to ask really big questions about, well, who is God? What's he about? Did he did he make this happen? I mean, in the early days, I, I thought he decided this, that he just decided that this was the way forward. I mean, ridiculous thing to think that I would think like that when you look back at it all these months later. But at the time, I was angry. I, I literally would spend many a morning because my sleep was so bad, I could always get to sleep. I couldn't stay asleep. So I would wake up for months on end, anywhere between half two and half four. Um, and quite often in, the, in those early mornings, I'd walk down to the end of the garden and we've got the uh, River Thames where we are in Reading runs past the end of our garden. And I would just rant at God. Why? That would be my common question. Why, why have you allowed this? I realised he didn't cause it, but he did for me allow it because I prayed with the most faith I've ever prayed for hours that, that Friday when the doctor said she's got hours to live for that bleeding in her brain that ultimately took her life to stop. And he didn't answer those prayers. And it's one of the great, you know, conundrums and difficulties that Christians have to deal with. Why does he heal one person but doesn't heal the other? We know God does heal, but he doesn't always heal. And I wrestled with that for weeks. I shouted at him, why have you done this? Why have you allowed now my boy to grow up without a mum, a huge amount of anger. And I still do at times. I still have anger. But, you know, even amongst something as grim as this, when I look back on the last 15 months or so, I can still see God at work. It's just when you're in the middle of it, when kind of grief is raging at its most intense, you can't really see it. And I, I just had an awful lot of anger, but I just couldn't quite let go because I knew that once I let go, then that hope dies. Simon, tell us where you're at today. I was a single parent under different circumstances for five years before Little Ones, and it's tough. I know you've finished a book and you've met someone new. Tell us about how you've reshaped your life. Well, life is is still, has a lot of question marks hanging over it. Um, yeah, it's just so much has changed on that day when she went. Um, it feels like your life was not just turned upside down, it was... It was turned inside out as well. Everything that you kind of expected to be coming up in the future, your hopes, your dreams, your plans, were effectively put through a shredder and they've gone. And the last year has been about trying to reshape life, trying to, you know, find a reason to live, find a reason to find purpose in life again. And it's a really, really hard journey because when you've had so much taken away from you, you know, just being a single parent is a big challenge. I'd never appreciated that before. You know, I understood kind of it must be a bit tricky for single parents to have to carry everything on your own. But until you actually become one and you're also dealing with the, the grief of, of missing the person you've lost, yeah, suddenly everything's on you. And it's hard not to just feel like life 
at the moment has just been loss after loss because I didn't want to have to step away from Sky. I didn't want to stop doing the job I loved, but I had to do it because I couldn't see how possibly it was going to work, being away at weekends, being busy over Ethan's holidays, of not being present for him. When he's been put through, the worst thing he can go through, well, hopefully the worst thing he can go through, I don't want him feeling that he's losing me as well because I'm never around. His life should not now be about him being passed around from person to person so dad can go to work. So I'm having to reshape my career. What do I do next? Something like this, particularly when it happens at the wrong time in life, it presents you with endless questions about what life is going to look like. And, you know, bit by bit, it's beginning to take shape. I finished the book a few weeks ago. It's going to be out on Father's Day this year. Um, I don't know what direction that's going to take me in. Do I you know, become a writer more full time? Is that something you know, that could be ahead? But there, there are just lots of questions still that I have to answer. When is going to be the right time to start working more if work comes? And, and how do I manage that with Ethan so that he doesn't feel that dad's just disappeared, but he knows that I've got to work? And, you know, you know being in a, a new relationship is a massive blessing. You know, it is really has been a, a massive surprise. It's been a big blessing as well. But that comes with, you know, its own challenges as well. Because for someone to come into your life and stand alongside someone who's been through something so difficult, it takes a really special person because you are effectively taking on not just them, you're taking on their, their pain as well. Because the the... The, pe- the thing people get wrong about grief when they haven't been through it themselves is they, they think it's something you, you get over. You don't. You do not get over because grief is ultimately an expression of love. And I'm never going to stop loving Gemma. So I'm never going to stop missing her. Just the intensity of it will change over time. Um, but for a new person coming into your life, there's almost, there is kind of a third person, that relationship. And so it takes someone amazing to stand alongside you but you know she's brought me you know a kind of sense of happiness again um has helped me through some really difficult times has become a really really good and important friend for ethan uh and has just been someone who in her own way along with others as well but her more than anyone else has just helped me kind of find life again finally what advice would you give to people especially dads struggling with grief well First thing I'd say if, you know, any dad is unfortunate enough to go through something like this is that lean on, if you get support in the early weeks, which a lot of people do, I had incredible support for the first few weeks, lean on it for all it's worth. Don't be proud. Don't feel I should be doing this. If people are extending the hand of friendship and of support in those early weeks, then just grab it and don't be proud. Just lean on everyone you can lean on. Um, don't be afraid to get help. You know, I go and see a grief counsellor every single week and have been doing that for the last 15 months. And it's just a really helpful thing every week just to have someone you can offload on, someone who's not going to judge you, someone who is going to understand in a way that others can't because it's their job. It's just really important you have an outlet every week. You know, some weeks I go to the counsellor and I, I don't really have anything to say. And yet an hour later I come out and think, crikey, where did that come from? That's been really helpful. Um and I'd say to any any single dad out there who's who's you know trying to support their kids as they go through this is keep the lines of communication with your kids open, whether you've got one kid or three kids, because they are going to walk their own journey of grief. And it's going to be very painful for you to watch that because, like I said earlier, as a parent, you want to fix it. The problem with this, the hardest part of this is you can't fix it. The one thing your kids are going to want is their mum back. The one thing Ethan wants is his mum back. It's the one single biggest thing I can't give him. I cannot give him. 
So keep those lines of communication open. Ask them questions. When they ask you difficult questions, don't close them down. That's the temptation sometimes. In the early days, Ethan would ask me some really curveball questions about life. Like one day he just said to me, you know, Dad, how, how do I know you're not going to die tonight? Because he'd seen his mum die in three days. So it's a totally valid question. I could have just said, don't be so silly, I'm not talking about that. But I went there with him because what you do in doing that is you keep the door open and it means that they feel they're able to ask you stuff, they're able to share their concerns with you. So keep that line of communication open, keep asking them how they are, keep asking them to express how they're feeling. And also I'd say to dads, don't be afraid to express your emotions because it's really important. Too often we feel like we've got to bottle stuff up and not just with grief, but with so many things that guys face, whether it's difficulties at work, relationship issues, whatever it might be, we're far too good at bottling it up and not dealing with it. And and for a grieving dad, if I just say, let your emotions out. The only emotion I've ever protected Ethan from, because I think it's very disconcerting, is anger. I would often take myself out of the room or out of the house if I could feel anger welling in me. And not anger towards him, but just anger about the injustice of the situation he and I now find ourselves in. I would protect him from that. But if I, if I was crying or frustrated, whatever it might be, just feel you can express those because your kids are hurting and they're going to understand you and support you in ways in which you won't believe they could. Because when a kid goes through this, sadly, they have to grow up a lot emotionally. And the, the emotional maturity Ethan's developed in the last 15 months has been incredible. You know, times when I have cried and he's just come and give me a hug and said, Dad, we're going to be OK. And he's nine years of age. So keep those lines of communication open and just don't be proud to ask for help. I've been too proud too often when I've been really struggling and as that support kind of dwindles away, which it does, it doesn't, it won't be maintained at the level of the first few weeks. I'm sometimes, I'm just too proud. And instead I suffer in silence when actually I should be picking up the phone to a mate and saying, can you pop round tonight? I'm, I'm, I'm having a bit of a tough day. Hey, this is Sylvester Stallone and I play it tough. You're listening to the Sword of Man Up podcast. This is what we do. Well, that's about it for now. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. I told you it was going to be a good one. A huge thanks to my special guest, Simon Thomas. Watch out for the book and Simon on social media as well. Until next time, this is your old friend Steve Legg on the Sorted Man Up podcast. Do encourage your mates to subscribe and download and share on Facebook and Twitter. Let's spread the word. Till next time, see ya. That was the Man Up podcast. They'll be back. You've been listening to the Man Up Podcast from Sorted Magazine, recorded, edited, and delivered by FlagshipRecording.com.